Time for us to make a start. Thank you for coming out tonight and thank you for sitting towards the front. Wow, it's like no one up the back. Well done. I think that's the first time since I've been here that's ever happened. So I can talk even softer and save my voice. Um, but no, thank you for coming out tonight and I trust uh, tonight will be a blessing. Uh, tonight we're starting a new series. And uh, as a preacher, that's always exciting for me. Uh, the first message is, is nice. I love starting something new. And uh, this particular series is actually one that I'm really looking forward to because I've always wanted to do it. Um, but I've only ever taught this to children before. I've taught it to five-year-olds and so forth numerous times. But I've never taught adults on the attribute of God, on the attributes of God. Um, so I'm excited uh, about this new series. Now, when we speak of the attributes of God, we're talking about his characteristics or the various aspects of his essence or nature. And although attributes is the most uh, commonly used term, and hence that will be uh, the term that we will use, I do think the term perfections is a better term. Uh, as one theologian puts it in this quote uh, in your notes, he says, Perfections works better than attributes because perfection specifies that the characteristics of God are each perfect and inherently characterize the God who is perfect. The term attributes does not inherently specify perfect characteristics and might hint that these originate in someone's concept of God rather than in God himself. Okay, so the term perfections is another word that we can use. And uh, throughout, I, I will use those terms interchangeably. Okay, if I say perfections or if I say attributes, I'm talking about the same thing. I uh, just swap between terms a little bit and I hope that doesn't confuse you. Uh, but with that in mind, okay, we could use this definition. God's perfections are the essential characteristics of his nature. Okay, God's perfections are the essential characteristics of his nature. And uh, this is what we're going to be considering uh, over the, the coming weeks and months, the very character and nature of God. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's pray and uh, then we'll commence our journey of exploring the glorious character of our God. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. You are a great God. And as we commence uh, this study of your character and nature, please uh, help our understanding and comprehension of yourself to increase. And please grow our love and enthrallment of you. We so desperately need to know you more deeply and intimately. And uh, by your grace, may this become a reality. Uh, for we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. A.W. Tozer has uh, written some excellent books on the attributes of God, uh, and he has made these three statements that I trust will help us to grasp the importance of knowing God. He says this, this is the most famous. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He also says Christianity is weak or strong at any given time and in any given place, depending on their concept 
of God. He adds, Christianity is decaying and going down into the gutter because the God of modern Christianity is not the God of the Bible. Now, these are three statements all stress the absolute necessity of knowing God. If Christianity is to be strong and to make an impact, if our church is to be strong and make an impact, it needs Christians who are growing in their knowing of God. Christians who delight in God, who are captivated by Him. Okay, Christians who desire more than anything else in this world to know their God more deeply and intimately for this to be their lifelong pursuits. And what a difference it would make if everyone in our church was committed to knowing God better. Okay, if our consuming passion was growing in the knowledge of our Lord. Okay, if we were so struck by him that we couldn't get enough of him. Because that's what it's like. Okay, when you get a taste of the greatness of God, okay, when you get a glimpse of that, you want more and more. Okay, it's like your favorite dessert, okay, whatever that may be. If someone puts a big bowl of that in front of you, you're not going to stop at one spoon. Okay, you want more and more and more. And if you have the self-control to stop at one spoon, you're much better than me. You know, it's very hard for me to stop at one piece uh, of chocolate. That's one of my many kryptonites. And the chocolatey goodness hits my taste buds and the happy chemicals are released and I want more and more and more. Okay, and this is what it's like when we really get to know God. Okay, we, we become enthralled by him and then there's this hunger and there is this thirst for him. And that's the desire from this series, okay, that we would all be committed to pursuing greater knowledge of our God, okay, that, that we would be captivated by him. Now, in this series, we're going to consider some of God's perfections, and this will help us to understand what our God is like. But before we consider the attributes individually, we need to have some important principles established. And these are foundational because they will help us to understand our God correctly. Because as sinful mankind, we all have this tendency to construct incorrect concepts or views of God, and we can end up developing very twisted, distorted, and imbalanced views, and that will have all kinds of harmful impacts in our lives. And therefore, it's vital that we understand these foundational principles. And I will warn you, there is a little bit of theological phraseology, which sometimes might take a little bit of thinking through, but it is worth it. Okay, so, so number one, we couldn't know God's perfections if he didn't reveal them, but he did in the Bible. God must reveal himself in order for us to know him. We couldn't know God without his self-revelation. And the primary place that God has revealed himself is in the Bible. 
Now, it's true that there is general revelation. Okay, the creation tells us something about God. We, we learn about that in Romans chapter 1. But the problem is sinful mankind tends to misinterpret that and, and twist that and construct that their own views of God. And hence, we need to go to the scriptures. This is God's self-revelation of what he is like. And any perception that we have of God must be in harmony with the Bible. Any, any thought or any view that we have of God that contradicts Scripture is wrong. And if the Bible says God is like this or like that, then that settles it. Even if it's not okay, palatable to our modern perceptions. So if the Bible says God is good and loving, that settles it. It's a closed and undisputable case. Even if it doesn't feel like that or, or look like that in your life. Because your feelings are very subjective. But the Bible is objective truth. And it's in the Bible that we get to know God. And only the Bible gives perfectly accurate information about God and his perfections. Number two, God is fully each of his perfections. Whatever God is, he is totally in his essence. Whatever God is, he is totally in his essence. So we need to understand that God is not made up of parts. God cannot be divided, which means that each and all of his perfections are his essence. So if God is not fully and absolutely love, or fully and absolutely holy, or fully and absolutely good, or whatever other attribute you'd like to put in there, then he is not fully and absolutely God. So God's attributes must characterize him totally, eternally, and infinitely. And you know, perhaps an illustration is helpful of what I'm trying to get across. You remember the pie graphs at school? When, when you think of God, if you have a pie graph, it's not like he is 15% love, 10% justice, 5% omniscient, you know, 3% immutable, and you work your way around the pie graph. Okay, God's not like that. But rather, God is fully all of his perfections. Okay, so I hope that makes sense. And likewise with God, it's not that he does loving things or does powerful things, although he does, but he is love. He is powerful and and so forth so his perfections his attributes are not merely what he does but who he is and then the third principle is that god's perfections qualify and complement each other 
So because God is each of his perfections in all of his essence, which is what I've just argued, then each of his perfections complements and qualifies each of his other perfections. So for example, his justice is a holy justice. His love is a righteous love. And one attribute doesn't usurp another. So there isn't a more powerful or dominant attribute that overcomes another. Nor is any attribute preeminent or independent. So love doesn't absorb up wrath. Okay? It's not like God is so loving, he no longer has any wrath. Okay? That's not true. But, but how we should think of it is that God's wrath will be loving. So it influences and complements wrath, but it doesn't consume wrath. It doesn't make it obsolete. And that's true of every single attribute. They're in harmony. They qualify, they complement, and they influence each other. So these three principles will help us immensely as we seek to grow in the knowledge of our God by exploring his perfections. Now, one more point before we consider the particular attribute for tonight. Okay, when it comes to God's attributes, they are typically divided into two groups. Now, I do want to say that these groups, okay, they're not biblical categories. So that should cause us to be cautious. But they are used by theologians and they okay, have been used throughout all of church history. And I do think they are helpful, although they have limitations and weaknesses. Now, where it gets confusing is if you read 10 different theology books, there's probably three or four different names for these categories. And it depends what book you read. So some authors will speak of the moral and natural attributes. That's the two categories that they use. Others will speak of the absolute and relative attributes. But the one that I prefer uh, is the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God. And I'm sorry for choosing the hardest one to say, but uh, I do think um, it is quite helpful. Now you're saying, what in the world does incommunicable and communicable mean? Well, let me share. Uh, the incommunicable perfections are those characteristics unique to God. So think of self-existence, eternality, immutability, infinite, omnipotence, omniscience. Whereas the communicable perfections are those characteristics transferable in part to humans. Okay, so, so these are traits that we too can have. So think of goodness, righteousness, love, and mercy. Now again, uh, this is not perfect because no attribute is completely communicable. What I mean by that is you and I do not possess love, goodness, and grace in the same capacity as God. Okay, we're nowhere near that. And even with some of the incommunicable attributes, it may be argued that it's possible to share a little of some of those things in that your mankind can have some power and some knowledge. So we could offer this definition. Communicable are those that are more shared with us and the incommunicable are those that are less shared by us. 
But generally speaking, okay, there are attributes that we can possess and there are attributes that we can't possess. And I want to make that distinction because I think it's very important and it's actually quite practical. When the Bible instructs us to be conformed to the image of Christ, okay, that's the goal of sanctification. We, we are to be gradually changing to be more and more like Jesus. So as we look into the mirror over time, it should reflect something that's looking more and more like Jesus. Now, when the Bible speaks of this, it means that we are to be displaying these communicable attributes. So we are to be more loving like Jesus. We are to be more gracious like Jesus, more merciful like Jesus, more long-suffering like Jesus, more righteous, more just, and, and so on. And this happens as we see Jesus. Okay, so as we discover, as we experience what he is like, we become more like him. Okay, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally changes and transforms us. You know, it, it's like that caterpillar that gets changed into the beautiful butterfly. That's the work that's happening. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3.18 spells this out. It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we behold the glory of the Lord, as, as we discover, as we learn what God is like, as we see that, as we experience that, it will change us. And the Holy Spirit begins to mold and shape us into the image of Jesus. So these communicable attributes are to come more prevalent and more pervasive in our lives. And we will be transformed as we spend more time with the Lord and get to know him more deeply and intimately. But there's a problem that we all need to be aware of. And, and this particular problem is as old as time itself. Because this was an issue in the Garden of Eden. What we as mankind end up craving is the incommunicable attributes of God. We want to be like God in ways that we are not meant to be. In other words, we end up making ourselves God. So, so we end up craving sovereignty. Have you ever craved that? You want to be in control. You want to be calling the shots. I struggle with this all the time. I want to be in control. We, we often live like we're eternal. We're accumulating all these material possessions like we're going to be here for a million years. We, we crave self-existence. We, we think that we depend on absolutely nothing and no one. We want omnipotence. Okay? We, we want all the power. We want omniscience. We want to know everything. Or, or we think we know everything and, and so forth. And we end up chasing and we end up coveting those things about God that we were never meant to possess because we are not gods. So there are perfections of God that we are not to seek. 
okay, that, that there are some things unique to just him, okay, that there are certain qualities that mean no one is like him. But then there are other perfections that are to be more prevalent in our lives because that's what it means to be changed into his image. But we do need to be aware and alert of the original temptation. Genesis 3, Eve was tempted to become like God in a forbidden way. And that's still a struggle for each of us. We can desire to be like God in forbidden ways. Okay, that there are right and wrong ways for us to be like God's. And it's vital that we are aware of this distinction and our proneness to covet that which never belongs to us. And then ignore the ways that we are designed to be like God as image bearers. Okay, as the children of Adam and Eve, we face the same temptation, it just takes different forms. And this is an important reality to keep at the forefront of our minds. So with those foundations laid, we can start considering the attributes of God. And we're going to start with the incommunicable attributes of God. And I think that will likely take us through to the end of the year. And we will start looking at the communicable attributes sometime at the start of next year. Now, for the rest of tonight, we're going to focus on one facet of God. And that is that God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. Okay, God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. So the obvious starting place for our study is this question, can we know God? Is it possible to know God? Is he knowable? And, and when we talk about being knowable, okay, we, we mean this in two senses, sorry, two ways. Is God knowable in a factual sense? Okay, we can know things about him. Or is he knowable in a relational sense? Okay, and we, we understand that difference. Okay, we, we would all say that we know the Australian Prime Minister. And what we mean by that is we know things about him. We know his name. We know what party uh, he leads. And, you know, you may know a couple of other random facts. But his family and friends also know him. But that's a different type of knowledge. So is it possible for us to know God? Okay, what does the Bible have to say? Well, here are several verses that will shed some light on this question. Is God knowable? So could you please go to John chapter 17? What we're going to do, we're going to consider numerous verses, very topical in our approach tonight. And that will probably be the approach for a lot of the attributes. Okay, so John chapter 17. This is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in verse 3, okay, this is Jesus speaking. He says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know, in our lives, there are people who we are glad that we have met them. Okay, we're incredibly grateful that we've had interactions with them. It's a blessing to know certain people. Well, there may be some other people who, not so much. But, you know, the, the greatest blessing for us is that we can know God. Okay, this is Jesus' points. 
And he makes it very clear that it's possible to know God. And here it's linked with eternal life. A blessing of eternal life is knowing God. And this knowledge involves knowing something about them. So there's that factual element. But this also involves a deeply personal and intimate relationship. That's all conveyed in the Greek term that's used. It's also interesting, the Greek verb tense here indicates that this knowledge is a growing experience. It's something that develops. It's something that increases. So just like a human relationship, as you spend time with somebody, your knowledge will grow and the strength of that bond will increase. That is the, then that, that's the same with God. Okay, so Jesus here makes it clear that we can know God. Let's now go to the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 9, please. Jeremiah chapter 9, we'll read verses 23 and 24. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Okay, the point of these verses in context is that the people were guilty of misplaced confidence. And they were putting their trust in their wisdom, in their might, or in their wealth, or their riches. But the point here is that those things would not prevent the coming judgment. Okay, that the judgment that was going to come on Judah through Babylon. Okay, it would not, okay, it would not not happen. It's a poor phrase. Okay, but because of their, okay, their wisdom, their might, or their riches. But rather, this judgment would have been spared if they had gloried in the Lord, if they had have pursued Him. But verse 6 says that they refuse to know the Lord. But what this text confirms is the possibility of knowing the Lord. And again, this word know that's used here, it's much more than you know, an intellectual knowledge, but rather it's relational. Okay, that this Hebrew word is used of the marriage relationship. So it's an intimate knowledge and understanding. And we're encouraged to glory in this, which means to celebrate it, to proclaim it, to boast about it, to have confidence in it, to depend upon it. Okay, so, so this is what we're encouraged to do, to glory in it, to boast, to, to celebrate the fact that we can know and understand God. My, my friend, this is the greatest thing. This is an amazing reality. It is possible for us to know God. That's the argument here in Jeremiah Chapter 9. Okay, let's now go to the book of Hebrews. Okay, the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ. And I'd like us to go to chapter 8. And the theme in chapter 8 is the superiority of the new covenant. Okay, the new covenant is inaugurated by Christ. And it outlines some of the ways that the new covenant is superior to the old. 
And verse 11 gives us one such way. And it says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Okay, so notice what this is saying. All new covenant people, no matter one's status, gender, race, age, or position, that that's all irrelevant. All new covenant people from the lowest to the highest have experiential knowledge of the Lord. That's a blessing of the new covenant. Each individual, that includes you, that includes me, we can know the Lord. Okay? And this comes direct. Okay? We, we don't have to go through, through a priest or through some sacrifice because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Because of him, we can have knowledge of God. A relationship with him. This is available to all new covenant believers, which confirms that God is knowable. Let's now turn to Philippians chapter 3. Okay, verses 8 and 10. And this comes in the context of Paul reflecting on his previous achievements. Okay, so, so that which he had previously been trusting in to earn God's favor. Okay, I, I do all of these things, so this means God will accept me. But now that he had come to Christ, he understood those things that he was previously trusting in to be useless, that they couldn't make him right with God. And now he had a new passion. Okay, this is now what drove him. This is what he wanted more than anything else. Okay, verse 8. Yea, doubtless... And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto death. Paul wanted to know Jesus. This was now his heart's great desire, his previous legalism that was focused on his personal performance. That had been eradicated. Surgery had been performed. That deadly cancer was removed. And, and now he wanted Jesus. And the simple plea of his heart, his great desire was to know him. So, these texts that we've considered and many others make it abundantly clear that we can know God. He is knowable. And think about that. That's a wonderful reality. That's a stunning gift of grace because he's only knowable because he revealed himself. And my friend, I, I don't want this amazing truth to just bounce off you. I know it's late. I know it's Wednesday. You know, Wednesday is one of the saddest days of the week. I get that. You've got lots going on. But don't miss this glorious reality. You can know God. Isn't that amazing? You know, it, it's possible for us to be in a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. You can know him personally and intimately. Okay, let that sink in. Think about it. Allow it to churn over in your minds. Let it filter throughout your entire being. May the Lord impress it on your heart. We as Christians can know God. 
fact, that's what the whole Christian life is about. It's a relationship with the Lord. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, imagine how excited uh, you would be if it was possible to have a personal relationship, a friendship with whoever your hero is. Okay, whether that be some sports star, a writer, an actor, a hero of the faith, a musician, whether it's someone past or present, whoever it is, and you got to know them, they were your friend, that would be an incredible opportunity. But how much greater it is that we can know God. That's incredible. So God is knowable. But he's also unknowable. Okay? <coughs> Paradox. I hope it wakes you up. God's knowable, but he's also unknowable. Okay, so here's the amazing thing about God. He is unable to be completely known. Okay, we, we cannot know everything there is to know about God. God is too big, he's too wide, he's too tall, he's too deep, he's infinite, unlimited, no boundaries, and cannot be comprehended completely by those who are finite, which is you and me. So, so we have this tension. Yes, God is knowable, but he is also incomprehensible. It's impossible to know God fully. Now, please understand, he can be known sufficiently. Okay, that's very important to understand. We can know enough about God for our salvation Okay, justification and our sanctification. And there's enough revealed to keep us in constant contemplation and reflection for all of our lives. Okay, there's a lot in the Bible, but we are never able to know him completely. And we never will, for there's just too much to know about God. It's an endless supply. Okay, so think about this. If the greatest theologians of history... If they were all to somehow unite and they were to compile everything that they knew about God. So, man, that would be one very big book, but that would only scratch the surface of understanding who God is. Because God is fully known only to himself. The only expert on God is God. Whereas our knowledge and understanding of God will only be partial. There is always more to discover. So let's consider what the Bible teaches on this aspect of God's glorious perfection. So let's go to Job chapter 11. You know, as we know, Job had some wonderful friends. And this contains the counsel of one of Job's friends as he tries to make sense of the immense suffering that Job experienced. So Job chapter 11, and we'll read verses 7 through to 9. 
The word of God says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. You know, the approach of Zophar is to give Job a lesson on theology. Uh, just what Job wanted, I'm sure. And uh, his theology is sound. But his application is certainly skewed and quite unhelpful. Gave free advice, bashing the herding with theology is rarely helpful. But for our purposes, it's the sound theology that I want to draw our attention to. He focuses on the fact that God is infinite. He has no limitations and that he is incomprehensible. He is beyond our understanding. So Job cannot understand what God is doing or seeking to achieve. That's the point. What's ironic is that Zophar seemed confident that he understood which is interesting, but that's not the point for tonight. The theology here is true. We don't understand everything about God. We don't understand everything about his person, plans, and purposes because they're too high, they're too deep, they're too wide for us. In other words, God is incomprehensible. At Deuteronomy 29, 29, perhaps a verse that you know, when you get there, you'll probably think, hey, I remember this verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So in context, this verse means that the people have not been told what will happen, okay? whether they will receive the blessings or the curses. From their perspective, this was contingent on their obedience. Okay? God himself knows, but he was not revealing it to them. Now, the general principle taught in this verse is that God has revealed some things to us, okay? primarily in the Bible. But there are some things that God hasn't revealed. There are things about his person, about his plans, about his purposes. There's so much that we don't know. Our knowledge is incomplete. But what we do know about God is meant to impact the way that we live. Okay, notice here the impact, that the emphasis here is on obedience. Okay, what we do know about God should lead us to obedience. But for our purposes, this clearly teaches that we don't know everything about God. God hasn't declared everything to us, and he doesn't have to. And since we're dependent on his self-revelation to know him, and he hasn't revealed everything, that means there are things that we don't know and we don't understand. Okay, let's now turn our attention to the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 145. Uh, this, is, this is a glorious psalm, one that's referred to as a crown jewel of praise. And that's a very adequate description. Uh, it's an exquisite piece that reflects on the glorious character of God. If you haven't read it recently, read it in your devotions tomorrow morning. Wonderful. Psalm 145 and verse 3, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. 
Okay, God's greatness means that he is superior in every sense and in every realm. He's unparalleled, he's incomparable, unequaled, unrivaled. So he, he is far grander, he is more excellent in every way. And such is the extent of his greatness that it's unsearchable. It's impossible to quantify. We can't fully comprehend it. We, we could search and search. The, the Hebrew word has the idea of investigating. So an analogy. Every person who has ever lived on planet Earth could set out investigating God. We, we could do this, all of us, for a thousand lifetimes, compile all of our investigations together, yet we would still not reach the end of God's greatness. There would still be more to discover. Turn over a couple of pages, or maybe it's on the same page in your Bible, Psalm 147. Again, it's a psalm of praise. And verse 5 says, Great is our Lord, and of great power his understanding is infinite. So this psalm reminds us of the nature and the character of the God that we worship. And it provides varying reasons to worship God. And in verse 5, okay, we learn that there's no fathoming the Lord's wisdom, that there is no measuring his knowledge, that there's no limits to his skill. Okay, the Hebrew word okay, translated understanding can refer to intelligence as well as skill and ability. So with God, his wisdom, his knowledge, his skill, it's infinite. It's boundless, it's immeasurable, it's limitless. And, and here there's actually a play on words. If you look back to verse 4, okay, he who has counted the stars and knows them by name, that, that's an illustration of his wisdom and his power, but he who knows this is unable to be fully known and comprehended. Okay, one more verse. That's Romans chapter 11. As we know in the book of Romans, Paul has just unpacked the gospel in all of its glorious detail. And, and at this point, he, he just can't contain himself and he just bursts out in praise. He's so struck by what God has done in the gospel. And he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So the apostle declares that we cannot fully comprehend God. His wisdom, his knowledge, it's too deep for us. His judgments are unsearchable. Okay, we can research, we can investigate, but we would never finish. Okay, we do not possess the capacity to fully comprehend God. And when we weave these texts together to form this glorious tapestry, it becomes very clear that God is incomprehensible. Yes, we can know him. That, that, that is a wonderful reality, but we cannot fully know him. Okay, so God is like this infinite puzzle. And we keep putting pieces together and the puzzle is looking more and more glorious. There is nothing like it, but we will never complete the puzzle because we will never finish discovering new things about God. 
Okay, and, and this is true of God as a totality, okay, his entire being. But this is also true of his individual attributes. We will never know everything there is to know about his love or his mercy or his grace or his wrath or his immutability or his eternality and so on. Okay, we can never know him or any single facet of his character in the ultimate, final, and complete sense. Isn't that astonishing? How can we do anything else but just stand in awe? It's glorious that we can know God, but we will never cease learning new things. You can never grow bored of God. And there is infinite, precious treasures for us to discover about him. And everything that we discover will be good because God is infinitely good. It's not like, you know, we go on this discovery track and all of a sudden we dredge out all these skeletons out of God's closet. No, God's not like man. Everything we discover is good. Okay, this is our God, and he is unable to be fully known. There will always be more to know about God. He is incomprehensible, yet knowable. That's our God. Okay, three ways to apply this to our lives. I'm going to be very short with these points of application. My goal is I want you to think this through for yourself. Three quick points. Number one, the problems and suffering of life. We don't know everything about God. We don't know everything about his person, plans, or purposes. Why? Because he's incomprehensible. And hence, we need to trust him with the problems and sufferings of life, even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense, because there's so much that we don't know. Number two, our eternal privilege. Have you ever thought about this? What will we do for all eternity? It's a question kids love to ask. If you know one thing that we will be doing, and, and this will be our great joy and privilege, is that we will discover, we will learn more and more about our glorious God. And think about this. That will continue for all eternity, and we will never run out of new things to learn about God. If that blows your mind and you can't comprehend that, that's good. That's what it's meant to do. And then number three, right now. Okay, it's the joyful duty, the delightful task of God's children to spend their lives discovering who he is. And I hope that excites you. There's so much to discover about God. There's endless treasure to find. There's always something new to learn, that there is always glories to uncover. And may that be the pursuit of our lives. Okay, may we be searching the scriptures daily to discover more about God. Okay, may that be our mentality as we're doing our devotions. Remember, the Bible is a book about God. What does this teach me about God? What, what can I learn about him? And may that be the passion and pursuit 
of our lives to discover more and more about our incomprehensible God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for for who you are. Uh, It's hard for our finite minds to to understand this, uh, that that you are uh, incomprehensible. But Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to ponder. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you have revealed uh, yourself to us. And uh, Lord, I do pray that it would be uh, the desire and pursuit of our life to be growing uh, in in our knowledge and understanding of you. Lord, I do pray that you would help us uh, put this into practice and uh, please keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.